Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of Proverbial is brought to you by Scully Academy, where you can discover restful, classical learning online. Their interactive online courses for grades K-12 through pair classical curriculum with a restful, or Scully, pedagogy, leading to deeper student engagement and learning that lasts. Choose from subject areas such as Latin, writing, grammar, mathematics, logic, history, science, and more, all taught by master instructors. Registration for the 2021-2022 courses are now open. Head over to www.scholeacademy.com. That's S-C-H-O-L-E academy.com to learn more and to enroll. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 51, Time Will Tell. Today's proverb comes from Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr. I'll read it twice. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Once more, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We really don't want this to be true. It sometimes seems like this is the opening line of half the shows I do. We don't want Proverbs to be true. And there is something painful about this saying. A kind of prosaic saying that rolls off the tongue rather easily whenever we see things happen that are inevitable. Whenever we see great reversals, great undoings. We're accustomed to great reversals, great undoings. And so we say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Everything is constantly being undone. And there really is no such thing as a surprising fall from grace. There really is no such thing as a surprising reversal of fortune. 
all fortune is constantly being reversed. And the saying is painful because we want to believe that we have finally found permanence. We want to believe that we are the ones who will institute stability. After years of searching on a personal level, on a cultural level, something permanent, something that will last has finally been discovered. We want to believe that come next year, we will care about all the same things that break our hearts this year. There's something so pleasant, so comforting, so inspiring about the sort of advertisement that proclaims a certain company has finally created the last pair of jeans you'll ever need, the last pair of shoes you'll ever need. And that there is finally this identity, this image, this appearance that you can slip into and never have to worry about escaping. This will satisfy you from now on. The more things change, the more they stay the same. There's two levels on which we can interpret this proverb. One is the sort of perennial testimony to life on Earth that Carr offers. The heavens do not change, but the heavens are not things. The heavens are the bodiless powers, the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, God himself, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. Those things do not change, but those things are not things. That's why they do not change. Whereas we on earth live in this state of perpetual change. That is the nature of life on earth. From down here, amidst turmoil, turbulence, the constant shifting of luck, we gaze up at the night sky, we see the stars, we see the spheres, and we remember that there is this higher, better world where things don't change. Where the immortal, invisible God changes not. For the time being, though, we all live in this sort of tornado of luck. There's absolutely no way of predicting what's coming next, aside from knowing that something new is coming our way. Those who are wealthy will lose their wealth. Those who are healthy will lose their health. Those who are fashionable will become de rigueur. And that this is simply the nature of life on Earth. Everything's constantly changing. Luck is changing. The wheel of fortune keeps spinning. Fortunes rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall. Nothing lasts forever. And the upshot of this is that we have all the more reason to depend on God. And that God himself is the one who has more or less instituted Lady Fortune, given her the wheel of fortune, keeps it spinning so that no one ever puts too much stock or confidence in things below. 
the ephemerality of things on earth is a reminder that there is a place of glory and splendor and stability and that it's not here. And that if we store up our treasure in heaven, we store it up in a place where thieves can't break in and steal and moth and rust do not destroy. That's really the more philosophical way of understanding Jean-Baptiste Alphonse Carr's quote. Kind of perennial way, the way that Plato would have acknowledged, the way that Boethius acknowledged in the Consolation. Of course, Carr is a citizen of the 19th century. And that means that there's another way of understanding this quotation. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And he might have been talking about Lady Fortune's will, the instability of life on Earth, the constantly changing nature of life on Earth. But he might have been also describing life in the modern age. He might have been attempting to illuminate a certain quality of modern life that may not really have been at work in the time of Boethius, or the time of Plato. So in order to explain this other sense of the proverb, I'd like to provide a supplemental proverb, two for the price of one this week. And this is from Michel de Montaigne, 16th century essayist, sometimes regarded as the first essayist. And this is a quotation about Renaissance life that I picked up from Peter Lightheart's Solomon Among the Postmoderns. And here's Montaigne's quote. Before it was produced, the opposite was in vogue. And, as it was overthrown by this one, there may arise in the future a third invention, which will likewise smash the second. This is not really a description of life on planet Earth, but life in the modern city. Life in a place where people are tightly packed together and novelty has an incredible value, albeit an ephemeral one. Novelty cannot help but being ephemeral and passive. Before it was produced, the opposite was in vogue. And as it was overthrown by this one, there may arise in the future a third invention which will likewise smash the second. So if we remember the, the movement of Lady Fortune's wheel, of course, Lady Fortune's wheel has four quadrants on it. So if you draw a circle and intersect it uh, in a cross, what you find is four realms, and I believe that I've discussed this before, the top right quadrant is the realm of rule, I rule. The bottom right quadrant is I have ruled. The bottom left quadrant is I have no kingdom. And the top left quadrant is I will rule again. And Lady Fortune's wheel was conceived of as this sort of thing that was perpetually spinning. Fortunes were always rising and falling. You could never really say for certain 
where you fell on the quadrant, aside from knowing that things would get better and then things would get worse and then they'd get better and worse over and over again. And that was just the cyclical nature of life on Earth. Everything dies, it's reborn, it dies, it's reborn, and so forth. But Montaigne suggests something different. Before it was produced, the opposite was in vogue. And as it was overthrown by this one, there may arise in the future a third invention which will likewise smash the second. So the conception of fortune is this wheel that's always turning. Whereas what Michel de Montaigne points out is that life in the city is governed by a desire for novelty that is not in a cycle of newness, but is at war with old things. That's why, before it was produced, the opposite was in vogue. And as it was overthrown by this one, there may arise in the future a third invention which will likewise smash the second. And any time you have an industry that's given over to fashion, over to novelty, the thrill of new things, the thrill of the unknown, the thrill of that which is undiscovered and potentially shocking. What you have is a sort of system that's not built on anything like progress. Fashion does not work the way that science does. And this is a sort of basic conception of science, but it's not unfair to conceive of science as this sort of accumulation of knowledge, and the more you know, the more you can do. I know. I have read the structure of scientific revolutions, and I know that it's not just the accumulation of knowledge. But it's not unfair to think of science as the accumulation of knowledge. That's not what fashion is. Fashion is not an accumulation of anything. It's just this constant war where the latest thing overthrows and smashes the thing that's 10 minutes old. So this is the other way of understanding the more things change, the more they stay the same. It could be a sort of observation about the natural cycles of the world and that the world, this world, is in a constant state of change and that there's no way of undoing it. But the more cynical way of understanding this is that the more things change, the more they stay the same, despite our best efforts to create something new and permanent. We know what the permanent things are. We know that the permanent institutions of life on Earth are connected to transcendent realities. But the sorts of things that are new and offer permanence, permanence really on your own terms, simply cannot last. And really it's the modern goal to create something that people can commit to and take stock in but have no formal connection with. That's why we love movements. That's why we love ideologies and political dogmas. You can more or less commit yourself to them without having any sort of formal connection with them. It's not true, really, with the church. But the church is not a movement. It's not a fashion. It is beset by fashions. The church is constantly beset by the intrusion of fashion. Every wind of doctrine. 
where some sort of new proposal for resolving every problem the church has ever had comes sweeping through. If we just do this, if we just believe this, if we just throw our lot in with this secular movement, we will finally accomplish all that Christ intended us to, and we'll be able to do it in short order. This is what it looks like when the church is beset by movements, by fashion. One of the most profound icons of the sort of overthrow and smashing that attends fashion, the desire for change, the desire for new things, the belief that change is necessarily progress. And the best icon or the most apt icon of this, and the one that I appeal to more often over the last year, is Kevin Spacey. American Beauty. 1999 American Beauty wins Best Picture. Kevin Spacey portrays Lester Burnham, a man in a midlife crisis. He quits his job, buys an expensive car, and has sexual fantasies about his underage daughter's best friend. And of course the audience is involved in these sexual fantasies. We get to see the sorts of thoughts that Spacey enjoys. And we're enlisted, our sympathy is enlisted in his cause. We're not watching in horror as he pursues his young daughter's friend. The way that the film is built and assembled from one scene to the next asks us to root for him. And Spacey ultimately gets the girl into a state of undress and is about sleep with her when he suddenly changes his mind, although it's worth noting that the script which all the actors agreed to shoot did actually have him sleep with his underage girl. That's the story that he agreed to tell, and it was changed in the middle of the shooting. Well, I mean, this was the story that everyone fell in love with in Hollywood press in the late 90s. It was this beautiful story about a man who finds meaning in life, and none of the sorts of fantasies and pursuits of this young girl are ultimately condemned. They're all a part of this bigger process he's going through. 20 years later, Kevin Spacey, the human being, not the character, is canceled and sued for living out the life of the character that won him a claim Back in 1999. Turns out this guy is pursuing underage men. Exploiting them, using them, really doing the same sorts of creepy things that he carried on in the film. Although now, all of a sudden, so far as Spacey is concerned, this sort of thing is unfashionable. Oh, we don't do that sort of thing anymore. And so the same sorts of activities and desires that he was celebrated for 20 years ago, well, no longer allowed. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Which is to say that even in the state that things were in before, we 
we're still really not doing anything than having a sort of knee-jerk reaction to what came before that. And within the world of fashion, everything is this sort of violent impulse to destroy whatever we find is left over from the last captivating thing, the last messiah who came along. What was puritanical and regressive 25 years ago is salvific today. What was progressive 25 years ago is crass and vulgar and primitive today. The difference between these two separate senses of Carr's proverb, though, is that the cyclical view of the world, the cyclical view of fortune, acknowledged that there was something higher and better, and that we were not trapped below the moon in a state of constant change, that ultimately we are released from the fickleness of this world, we're even released from the fickleness of our own hearts, and we're finally granted some sort of permanence. Whereas the sorts of fashions that come to dominate the city and which slowly become self-contained and self-referential are all the more destructive because they do not have an eye on anything higher and better. When the world is viewed as a sort of tumultuous, ephemeral place, we take consolation in knowing that our God rules from a place of perfect tranquility and transcendence and stability. But once we lose sight of that higher transcendence that governs this ephemeral, passing, tumultuous world, then we're just left with tumult for its own sake. And fashions only speed up more and more quickly to distract us more and more quickly because if any fashion hangs around too long, we're able to inspect it, we're able to turn it over, we're really able to determine its fraudulent nature. So it's quicker to just cycle through these things as quickly as possible. And every sort of new thing that comes along has to come with an even more outrageous, outlandish set of promises than the thing before it. Because no fashion can ever really deliver on its promise, the promises simply have to get bigger to distract us from the fact that none of the promises have ever panned out before. Like, fashion doesn't work the way that science does. There's nothing that's so cool that it just stays around forever and destroys all the old pursuits of cool. Cool by its very nature cannot find a resting place. It cannot find a settled spot. So we switch styles of jeans over and over and over again. We make the waistband higher, we make it lower, we make them darker, we make them lighter, we make them pristine, we hack them up. But there's no jeans that are so cool that nobody ever needs new jeans again. Cool doesn't work like that. Cool's not like science where, you know, 50 years from now somebody says, well, we toyed around with all these different views of cool jeans and we were really just feeling around blindly in the dark and it wasn't until we discovered this pair of jeans that we found the abidingly cool pair of jeans. Fashion doesn't work that way. It claims to work that way, 
but it refuses to provide any evidence in its own favor. If you want to know what the future holds, on one hand, tough luck, but on the other hand, if you want to know what the future holds, just imagine the opposite of whatever's happening now. The sorts of things that we prize today, that we cherish today, will be despised in the future. The things that we put our confidence in today will breed doubt in the future. The sorts of things we benefit from today will be accused of victimizing us in the future. And so on and so forth. Now, every time one of these new things comes along, it makes claims to permanence. It makes claims to transcendence. And it preaches a sort of tranquility and ease to us. You can stop looking. That's what cool things always say. You can stop looking. You've found it. And there's a temptation to believe these things because we want stability. We want things to stop changing. Now, the only sort of life that can ever really escape Carr's dismal claim is a life which is not staked in things, but in the source of things, which is God. And there is a style of living. There is a pattern and habit of living that yields things up to God lest we become too dependent on things that will ultimately be stripped from us. This is the pious life, the life of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving that Christ prescribes in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a life of yielding things that we could never hang on to anyway. The pious life frees us both from the terror of change and the deceptive beauty of it as well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.